So many of the models that underpin our society, like science and you know, economics in particular, have as their basis that we are rational people doing rational things. Now, look, that's not totally untrue, but oh boy, you and I both know. I mean, some people are nuts. And I'm not just talking about the them who are on the other side of the fence, whatever that fence might be for you. I'm talking about your friends and your family. I mean, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book. Now, Julia Galef is the author of The Scout Mindset, and that book is the culmination of a long-time quest of hers. How do we improve human reasoning and judgment? Julia's pursued this doggedly. She co-founded a nonprofit called the Center for Applied Rationality, and she's hosted a podcast called Rationally Speaking for the past 10 or 11 years. Now, look, I know I'm irrational. I mean, first, I know a little bit about how I'm you know, primed by my environment and all of my cognitive biases. Plus, I can see what's going on inside my head. I mean, trust me, it's ugly in there at times. So is it even a useful goal to try and be perfectly rational? It, it's not possible to be perfectly rational. That's, that is accurate. Um, it, that, it, I think of rationality as this kind of um, polaris, like a North Star, as kind of a, a thing to aim towards. Um, but no human, no matter how smart they are or how much effort they're putting into it, can be perfectly rational. It's just like a, it's an abstract ideal. Um, and as you say, there's always going to be you know, cognitive biases built into our minds. I mean, we just have limited computing power in our brains and limited time to devote to reasoning. So you can't actually, you, you can't come to the perfectly calculated ideal, you know, optimal decision or, uh, or optimal answer. Um, you'd have to be a, a supercomputer with, uh, with infinite knowledge. <laughs> well, speaking for myself, I'm no supercomputer with infinite knowledge. But what about those people who are convinced that they're always rational, which of course means they're convinced they're always right? In my experience, those people are the minority, like not a tiny minority, but still the minority. And a larger group are the people who say, you know, yes, of course I've been wrong in the past. And of course, I recognize that humans in general are, you know, not perfect reasoners and humans in general have biases and get things wrong. And so I recognize that I'm not an exception to the rule of humanity. I get that. But still, you know, despite that intellectual recognition of their own, you know, bias, it still can be very difficult to, in the moment, recognize, oh, right now I am being, I'm rationalizing, or oh, right now I am in denial. <laughs> that's, that's really hard. So how do we lift our thinking game? How do we open ourselves to be, you know, not just smarter, but better humans? Julia frames her new book with a powerful metaphor of two different mindsets, the soldier and the scout. Soldier mindset is my term for essentially um, when you're reasoning about something or deciding what to believe, uh, you're often unconsciously reasoning as if you're a soldier defending your beliefs, your mm. you know, the things you want to believe against any evidence that might threaten them. <laughs> and so, you know, you can actually see soldier mindset reflected in the language that we use to talk about reasoning and belief and argument. We yes. talk about, you know, shooting down opposing arguments or poking right. holes in someone's logic. Um, we talk about our beliefs as if they're fortresses that should be, you know, strengthened and defended. Uh, so we use language like um, 
searching for evidence to buttress or support or mm. reinforce a position. We talk about beliefs being resting on firm foundations. Um, there's just this, this metaphor uh, built into our language. And so that's right. why I use the metaphor of soldier mindset. Uh, but, you know, it's not, I'm not the first person to point out this uh, feature of human psychology by any means. Um, so you've probably heard soldier mindset described as rationalizing or motivated reasoning is the term right. that cognitive scientists most often use uh, to refer to this uh, type of thinking. Yeah, give me a metaphor any day. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, reasoning, I just whatever. love metaphors. But soldier mindset, yeah. now I'm onto something interesting, yeah. Right, and and so to your question about where I got the metaphor from, the term is mine, but it was inspired uh, by, I think, the, the first person to kind of popularize or to point out this metaphor in the, in the English language was a linguist named George Lakoff. Um, he wrote a book called Metaphors We Live By. Yes. And he was just pointing out how our language kind of has these implicit metaphors in it. Huh. Uh, and so two of the examples he gave were beliefs. I, I might be misremembering the exact terms he used, but one was basically beliefs are like fortresses or beliefs yes. are like buildings was the was the exact term right, he used. Right. And also arguments are like battles um, mm. or argument is war. Um, and so that I, I think I encountered that. I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And yeah. so that that really stayed with me. And then scout mindset is the alternative to soldier mindset. Um, so a scout, unlike a soldier, their job is not to attack or defend. It's to go out, see what's really out there, and you know, form as accurate a map of a situation or a, a yeah. landscape as possible. Um, and you know, it's not that the scout has no preferences about what's true. Uh, they may hope to learn that, you know, there's a conveniently located bridge over the river where they need to cross or whatever. Yes. But above all, the scout just wants to know, okay, what is actually there? They what don't want to draw a bridge on their map where there isn't a bridge in reality. <laughs> right. Uh, so scout mindset is just my term for essentially reasoning with the, the goal of, of actually trying to figure out what is true. What's my honest best guess about the truth here. So yes. it's trying to be as objective as you can, trying to be intellectually honest and just curious about, you know, what is actually out there. So uh, that, you know, that That's metaphor really came. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. That metaphor was, was partly just, you know, in contrast to the soldier, what would be the metaphor there? Yeah. And it was also inspired by a, a metaphor from a mid-century philosopher. Um, his name I'm blanking on now. Korzybski, I think. It's a long name. Um, but he, he had this metaphor of the map and the territory. Yeah. Where he the map basically is not the territory. Exactly. The, the line? Yeah, quite. Yeah. yeah. So the, the idea, it sounds very simple. Um, and yet it's something that if you, if it's actually really salient to you and you're, you're right. sort of trying to pay attention to it, it can really change the way you think. The metaphor right. is just that your judgments about the world, your perceptions are just the map. They're not reality itself <laughs> yeah, and yeah. all maps are imperfect and incomplete. And so, you know, your map is different Love from reality that. and you, you always want to be conscious that, you know, Soldiers your map might be missing the map. things. And, right. Soldiers yeah, so, are defending the map. Scouts are creating uh, uh, their map, and scouts are creating a map. Yeah, I mean that that blurs Maybe. the metaphor a little bit, yeah, but I, <laughs> I I agree with the con the your yeah, point yeah. there that you know it really being in soldier mindset, your goal is to preserve the beliefs mm -hmm. that you currently have or that you want to have. Whereas as a scout, if you find out you're wrong about something, great, you've just made your map more accurate, yeah, and that yeah. can only help you as a scout. You want to learn what your map. You know, yeah, yeah. is wrong about or add things to your map and change things. So, uh, yeah, that, that comes out as a, a real difference in the way you think about evidence and react to new information. So anyway, so my metaphor in the book is basically like this chimera 
you know, hybrid metaphor that I that was inspired by different things I'd read in the past. Um, tell us about the book you've chosen to read. It's got a fantastic title. Yes. Uh, so this um, this was definitely an influential book in my trajectory. Um, it's called How to Actually Change Your Mind, um, right. Rationality from uh, AI to Zombies, which is a, <laughs> also, a, a great subtitle. complicated title. <laughs> oh, no, it's um, a wonderful but, title. Yeah. So it it's basically a compilation of blog posts um, mm. written in the mid-2000s uh, by Eliezer Yudkowsky, who's a, a blogger who founded the blog LessWrong.com. <laughs> um, I don't think he writes there anymore um but he was sort of the main blogger for years uh yeah. and so less wrong is a community of people uh interested in rationality interested in right. improving reasoning and decision making um basically a bunch of like amateur but very smart and motivated enthusiasts and so this community kind of formed around Eliezer's blog posts and people would discuss and debate them in the comment section and then post their own blog posts um and so how to actually change your mind um, was kind of a, a sequence of posts that Eliezer wrote that really addressed the kind of emotional or motivational right. side of trying to be more accurate. Um, and that's that's what really spoke to me and felt um, what, what sort of struck me as, as really underappreciated. Like there, there were a lot yeah. of books out there trying to give people cognitive tools or knowledge, like, you know, here's a list of the top 20 cognitive biases, or here's a list right. of the top 20 um, logical fallacies or whatever, you know, here's logic 101. Um, but that alone is not really enough to make yourself more accurate mm. um, because it all comes down to uh, your motivation, like how right. you're motivated to use that knowledge. And you could, you know, have be incredibly knowledgeable about cognitive biases and logical fallacies, <laughs> but be motivated to use that knowledge to like beat your opponent over the head with. Right, and, like I'm right. sure many of your listeners have encountered this person online who like comes to the debate equipped with a list of cognitive biases and just uses it to like say, now you're subject to the ad hominem fallacy or what you did just there. That <laughs> right. was a, you know, modus ponens, whatever uh, fallacy. And, yep. and that person is not improving their own reasoning. Right. Um, so anyway, this sequence, um, which Eliezer called how to actually change your mind um, was sort of one of the first times I started really thinking about and getting interested in the details of the motivational right. side of reasoning, of actually wanting to make your beliefs more accurate. It's so, such a great question. Yeah. Um, so, so as the subtitle says, it's it goes from AI to zombies. Yeah. Um, what, from A to Z. A to Z, exactly, yeah. or, or A to Z, as we say up in Canada yeah. here. Uh, of course. Um, uh, how did you pick the two pages you're going to read for us? Uh, so I just tried to pick a section that was relatively self-contained and that felt yeah. sort of the most central. Nice. I mean, you, if anyone has read or, or ends up reading my book, The Scout Mindset, you will recognize like, ah, this, I can see how reading this blog post or this like section of the book uh, set Julia on the course to write The Scout Mindset. That's um, brilliant. So, Well, yeah. Julia, let's hear these two pages. I'm excited to hear them. Politics is the mind killer. Debate is war. Arguments are soldiers. There's the temptation to search for ways to interpret every possible experimental result to confirm your theory, like securing a citadel against every possible line of attack. This you cannot do. It is mathematically impossible. For every expectation of evidence, there is an equal and opposite expectation of counter-evidence. 
but it's okay if your cherished belief isn't perfectly defended. If the hypothesis is that the coin comes up heads 95% of the time, then one time in 20, you will expect to see what looks like contrary evidence. This is okay. It's normal. It's even expected. As long as you've got 19 supporting observations for every contrary one. A probabilistic model can take a hit or two and still survive, so long as the hits don't keep on coming in. Yet it is widely believed, especially in the court of public opinion, that a true theory can have no failures and a false theory, no successes. You find people holding up the single piece of what they conceive to be evidence and claiming that their theory can explain it as though this were all the support that any theory needed. Apparently a false theory can have no supporting evidence. It is impossible for a false theory to fit even a single event. Thus, a single piece of confirming evidence is all that any theory needs. It is only slightly less foolish to hold up a single piece of probabilistic counter-evidence as disproof, as though it were impossible for a correct theory to have even a slight argument against it. But this is how humans have argued for ages and ages, trying to defeat all enemy arguments while denying the enemy even a single shred of support. People want their debates to be one-sided. They are accustomed to a world in which their preferred theories have not one iota of anti-support. Thus, allowing a single item of probabilistic counter-evidence would be the end of the world. I just know someone in the audience out there is going to say, but you can't concede even a single point if you want to win debates in the real world. If you concede that any counter-arguments exist, the enemy will harp on them over and over. You can't let the enemy do that, you'll lose. What could be more viscerally terrifying than that? Whatever. Rationality is not for winning debates. It is for deciding which side to join. If you've already decided which side to argue for, the work of rationality is done within you, whether well or poorly. But how can you yourself decide which side to argue? If choosing the wrong side is viscerally terrifying, even just a little viscerally terrifying, you'd best integrate all the evidence. Rationality is not a walk, but a dance. On each step in that dance, your foot should come down in exactly the correct spot, neither to the left nor to the right. Shifting belief upward with each iota of confirming evidence. Shifting belief downward with each iota of contrary evidence. Yes, down. Even with a correct model, if it is not an exact model, you will sometimes need to revise your belief down. If an iota or two of evidence happens to counter support your belief, that's okay. It happens sometimes with probabilistic evidence for non-exact theories. If an exact theory fails, you are in trouble. Just shift your belief downward a little, the probability, the odds ratio, or even a non-verbal weight of credence in your mind. Just shift downward a little and wait for more evidence. If the theory is true, supporting evidence will come in shortly, and the probability will climb again. If the theory is false, you don't really want it anyway. The problem with using black and white, binary, qualitative reasoning is that any single observation either destroys the theory or it does not. When not even a single contrary observation is allowed, it creates cognitive dissonance and has to be argued away. And this rules out incremental progress. It rules out correct integration of all the evidence. Reasoning probabilistically, we realize that on average, a correct theory will generate a greater weight of support than counter support. And so you can, without fear, say to yourself, this is gently contrary evidence. I will shift my belief downward. Yes, down. It does not destroy your cherished theory. That is qualitative reasoning. Think quantitatively. For every expectation of evidence, there is an equal and opposite expectation of counter-evidence. On every occasion, you must, on average, anticipate revising your beliefs downward as much as you anticipate revising them upward. If you think you already know what evidence will come in, then you must already be fairly sure of your theory. 
probability close to 1, which doesn't leave much room for the probability to go further upward. And however unlikely it seems that you will encounter disconfirming evidence, the resulting downward shift must be large enough to precisely balance the anticipated gain on the other side. The weighted mean of your expected posterior probability must equal your prior probability. How silly is it then to be terrified of revising your probability downward if you're bothering to investigate a matter at all? On average, you must anticipate as much downward shift as upward shift from every individual observation. It may perhaps happen that an iota of anti-support comes in again, and again, and again, while new support is slow to trickle in. You may find your belief drifting downward and further downward until finally, you realize from which quarter the winds of evidence are blowing against you. In that moment of realization, there is no point in constructing excuses. In that moment of realization, you have already relinquished your cherished belief. Yay, time to celebrate. Pop a champagne bottle or send out for pizza. You can't become stronger by keeping the beliefs you started with, after all. That's fantastic. And yeah. the only thing I'm going to argue with is I don't think it should be either champagne or pizza. It can be both. You <laughs> <laughs> can totally do both of those. Um, what, I'll take what it up it, with the user. <laughs> what is it about that this book and this chapter in particular that was so resonant for you? So, I mean, partly it was just calling my attention to the the fact that reasoning itself is not is not necessarily aimed at truth. Um, mm. There's a specific kind of reasoning that where you're really aimed at truth, um, and that sort of rationality is is a dance where you're trying to you know update properly in response to new evidence that. I don't know if that will uh, resonate with everyone, but it resonated with me. Uh, And also the idea. So I feel like people often have it backwards where they think, you know, allowing uncertainty, seeing the world in shades of gray instead of black and white is, you know, stressful or, or emotionally unsatisfying or yeah, yeah, that too. But like focusing on the emotional side of things, I think people feel like it's more satisfying or comfortable to, you know, just have certainty in your beliefs. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I loved about this chapter uh, of how to actually change your mind was kind of pointing out the emotional, the emotionally satisfying aspect of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as Eliezer points out, if you see things in black and white, then you have to fight off any evidence that contradicts your theory. Because right. if a- any piece of evidence gets in, then everything crumbles. But if you have beliefs in shades of gray, like, you know, I'm 75% sure of this political belief, or I'm 85% sure that this job is going to work out or whatever it is, then pieces of new evidence are not, they don't threaten to invalidate the entire belief. They just mean you adjust your belief a little bit downward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if more and more evidence comes in, as Eliezer says, you up your belief a little bit downward and a little bit downward, but each, you know, adjustment is emotionally uh, gentle. And, And so that, it feels very freeing to me. Um, to, you know, not have to see things in black and white. And so I found that kind of emotional aspect of, of probabilistic rational reasoning to be very exciting. And that's part of what I was trying to convey to people, um, in writing my book. Yeah. I mean, I love this idea that, um, your, your position in the world is less brittle if you're able to allow some ambiguity and some counter evidence in. Right, right. Less brittle is a good way to put it. Yeah, it's like the whole, um, you know, trees and 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 skyscrapers have a bit of flexibility built in so that the wind right. doesn't threaten to break them. Um, 
And yeah, I just think that's an under underappreciated um, mm -hmm. emotional benefit of uh, of accurate reasoning. To be able to allow in counter evidence, in some ways you have to disassociate the position you're holding from who you are and your own identity. Mm. Because one of the things that I find that can happen with me when I get somebody arguing against a position, it's like, yeah, you're not taking on my argument, you're insulting me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're challenging yeah. who I, my identity and who I am in this world. Right, right. Exactly. How, do you, how do you help people manage an ability to engage in arguments in a way that doesn't or is less threatening to their actual sense of self? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, one, uh, another essay that was actually quite influential uh, for me in this particular way was by Paul Graham. It's called Keep Your Identity Small. And, right. and he just you know, points out that, that so many beliefs um, from politics to religion to many other things can become part of our identities in the way that you're describing, where when someone disagrees with the belief, it feels like they're, they're attacking us personally. Mm -hmm. And, it, and you know, questions that otherwise would have been just simple matters of you know, empirical fact become referendums on our worth as a person. <laughs> right. um, and so, you know, Paul Graham's point was, well, you know, if you want to think as clearly as possible, then you should let as few things into your identity as possible. So, mm. you know, every label you give yourself from, you know, feminist to atheist to libertarian, whatever, all these labels kind of constrain your thinking because they, they create this, this thing that you have to defend in order to, you know, defend the honor of your tribe or, or your right. own honor. And, and so he said, yeah, let as few things into your identity as possible. And I think this is, um, is, is good advice, but it, it doesn't go all the way. Um, because as I learned from trying to implement <laughs> this advice myself, <laughs> it, it's kind of practically impossible to not have labels for yourself. Right. Like, uh, you know, labels have descriptive power. <laughs> like if your, if your views, you know, libertarian might be a good label for your views or like right. you might in fact be an atheist and like it's hard to avoid that label and it's it's hard you know it's also you might also you, you yeah. also find your tribe that way yeah that's you know, exactly what if I was you have if say. you have no if you have no label then yeah. people don't know whether you're with them or against them and there's a very basic wiring to our brain going are you with me or are you against me right right um, and yeah and, and there are often i think like causes, political parties or, or activist mm. groups that you think are genuinely doing good and you want to help. And part of the way you help is by identifying yourself with them and, mm -hmm. you know, touting them publicly. And, and we don't want to sacrifice that. And so, you know, part of the trick is keeping your identity small and reducing the amount of labels you have for yourself. But another part of the trick is just learning how to hold those identities lightly. That's the right. phrase I use um, I where, you know, yes, you, you know, you may call yourself a you know liberal or atheist or feminist, um, but you try to not let that label be a point of pride for you. Um, mm. it, it should feel like just a descriptive label you put on something and not like a flag that you're waving or a badge that you're wearing proudly. Right. Um, and you know, it's interesting. you should try to be on the lookout for, uh, you know, when you feel smug because like the atheist <laughs> won the argument or like there's an right. article that smacked down religious people and you like feel pleased with being on the right side. Um, I try to notice those feelings in myself and, you know, gently separate my my identity from those labels and you know sometimes i'll do things like uh if i notice myself being smug about uh i don't know a, a liberal argument or something i will then remind myself of liberal arguments that i think are bad <laughs> or liberals right. who i think are you know not a credit to the group or something 
just to kind of try to reduce that feeling of, you know, cheering for my side that I think is unhealthy to good thinking. Smug is a really good word. Yeah. Well, smug can, or like can, righteous. Can you, can you unpack smug for me? What, what is, I mean, I, <laughs> I love it, but what is it? What is, what are the elements of smug that, that get in the way of rational thinking or even the scout mindset? Well, it's a little hard to unpack, to be honest, but, you know, there's, so partly I think identities form as a result of, of pride where, yeah. I mean, just normal human pride, not, you know, we're humans, pride. we like to take pride in things like <laughs> yeah, that's, no, that's no. fine. I'm not, um, I'm not complaining about that, but you know, there are, there are certain belief systems that, um, that you feel like it, it says something good about you that you believe it. So for mm. example, um, someone might believe someone might be optimistic about the, the future, um, or like right. optimistic about technology. And that is, that's an empirical belief where they, they're like, I think technology is good for the world, or I think technology is going to keep making the world better. Um, so that's a, that's just an, a claim that they believe. Yeah. But I think a lot of, a lot of people feel that having that belief makes them a better person. Like it makes right. them, the fact that they're optimistic, it, it says something good about them. It means they're more, uh, Morally righteous or something. Yeah, or or like or admirable or mm -hmm. like the kind of person other people want to be around or the, I don't know. Different people might have different associations with the idea of being um, techno optimistic, but uh, but then you know when you when you defend that belief or you uphold that belief, you're kind of reaffirming that you have those good traits in mm. yourself, um, and that's again a very natural thing to be proud of. Um, and then the other thing that I think can really make a belief into an identity is feeling embattled. So, right. you know, if, if, if you've had to defend a belief, like let's say you're, uh, let's say you decide not to have children and, you know, a lot of people criticize that choice or question it. Um, and so you have to keep like insisting to people that it makes sense and it's valid. Mm -hmm. Um, then the fact that you've had to defend the belief for so long can make right. it part of your identity in, in the sense that like, changing your mind about that would feel like letting these people win who were attacking you all this time. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that can also contribute to the feeling of, um, you know, aha, that the other side has been, you know, smacked down. Mm. Uh, and again, that's very understandable and natural. Like people have been attacking you, especially unfairly. Um, it can feel very, it can be very natural to feel um, smug when those arguments are, are smacked down. So one of the, all of this one is of the... understandable. It's just like <laughs> not helpful. <laughs> One of the, I was reading a, a New Yorker article recently about cults and yeah. um, pointing out that, you know, a cult that goes, the, the, the world is literally going to end on, the, you know, the 28th of August, 1972. Mm -hmm. And when it didn't happen, it, it actually strengthened people's belief in the cult. Not everybody. There's probably a bunch of people that, yeah. who went, oh, that does, okay, maybe this isn't the cult for me. Yeah. But for a lot of people, it's like, no, I'm, I'm doubling down on this because right. there's something hard to let go of the identity and the proof that I'm wrong just makes me defensive rather than open to a, maybe yeah. there's an alternative here. I, I remember a similar phenomenon. Um, so the, the magician and skeptic, uh, James Randi, uh, the amazing Randi who recently passed away, uh, he he pulled up this huge hoax in Australia in maybe it was the seventies um, where he, you know, convinced the country that he was, I think psychic or right. I forget, I forget what it was now. Um, and he, you know, got all these followers and then revealed actually this was a hoax and here's how I did it. I'm a magician. Um, <laughs> and even though he had 
you know, himself right. confessed that it was a hoax, there were still tons of people who doubled down and said, no, 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 you <laughs> right, really right. are psychic and you're just this trying just to- just proves you're the Messiah. Attention <laughs> or something. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's human psychology, man. Um, I, I want to get better at admitting I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do I do that, Julia? Uh, yeah, so I think part of the answer is changing how you think about being wrong and right. and focusing on it as you're making yourself stronger and better. <laughs> you're making yeah. your map more accurate. Uh, and also, you know, being wrong is not being wrong does not mean you did something wrong necessarily. Right. Um, so you know the way the scout thinks about it is we all start out with these completely imperfect, inaccurate maps, just mm. you know necessarily because, humans have imperfect information and limited time. And even the most brilliant person in the world is going to be wrong about tons of things necessarily. And our goal over time is to make ourselves less wrong (laughs) and to make our our maps more accurate (laughs) and keep revising and redrawing them. And so when you have to revise your map, i.e. when you discover you were wrong about something, that does Mm. not mean you screwed up somewhere. Um, It's that's how things should be happening. Um, Because I think a lot of people just implicitly figure, well, if I was wrong about something, I must have screwed up somehow, but that's not necessarily true. And so I think recognizing that is an important really step helpful. towards being, you know, willing to find out you're wrong. Yeah. Um, so data is changing rather than I screwed up and therefore right, actually exactly. I'm dumb, stupid, bad, inadequate, right. whatever it might be, whatever you might tangle and, into that. And to add a little more nuance to that, sometimes being wrong means you did something wrong. Uh, <laughs> right. Like sometimes when I look back, uh, I recognize, oh, I got that wrong because I was, you know, really careless. Like mm. I could have just double checked before I shared this article and I, you know, I, I knew better. I should have double checked before sharing this sensationalist article and I just didn't. So yeah, that's on me. I screwed up. Oh, well, I'll do it better next time. Um, but a lot of the time being wrong, you know, you didn't do anything wrong. You just, you, right. you know, formed the best beliefs you could given the information you had at the time. And now you have new information and you know, that's fine. So yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of the most important first step is changing the way you look at being wrong. Yeah. Um, and then I'll add one more uh, piece of advice to that, which is in a specific instance, when you know it first occurs to you, mm, I wonder if I'm wrong about this, mm. and you're tempted to kind of push that thought out of your mind, uh, I find it's helpful to stop and just ask yourself, okay, suppose I was wrong. How bad would that be? Um, right. Like, suppose you're in an argument online and you know, That's you want to make yourself yeah. open to being wrong, ask yourself like, okay, suppose I was wrong. How bad would that be? Or, or you know, what would right. I do about that? Right. And, and the first like second you think about being wrong, it's very unpleasant. You feel stressed out or you know, defensive, <laughs> like, oh, that would be really terrible. Yeah. But then if you think about it for more than a second, yeah. often what I realize is ah, it wouldn't be that bad. Like here's right. what, here's how I would word my, you know, my concession like, like on Twitter. I'd say like, oh, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, you know what? I realized, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. Or like, I hadn't thought of X, Y, Z or something. There's often just like a phrasing I come up with. And then I'm like, oh yeah, I could say that. That wouldn't be so bad. Um, I've been wrong before and people haven't, you know, torn my head off. And, you know, all of that takes like one or two seconds. And then I just feel much more willing to find out that I'm wrong if I am. Um, But you have to kind of first reach the, the acceptance of the possibility of being wrong before you're able to think clearly about whether you are wrong. I do love the idea of having, you know, a short number of phrases that you're able to yeah. deploy to admit wrongness. You know, right. you're like I've got five phrases that I don't mind saying <laughs> that help that help <laughs> me mean, in a gracious helps. way. Yeah. 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 
Um, yeah, or or just you know things to make being wrong more palatable. Yeah, uh, silver linings, if you will. Like yeah. one thing I sometimes remind myself of if I'm trying to come to terms with the possibility that I'm wrong is well, if I tell people I'm wrong now, I'm kind of I'm investing in my ability to be convincing in the future because I'm yes. proving to people that I'm not the kind of person who just always sticks to her guns no matter what. Yeah. I'm proving that I am willing to say I'm wrong if I think I am. And so then in the future, if I'm trying to argue a point, people will know like, oh, she's not just sticking mm. to her guns because she is that kind of person. Um, yeah. you know, so that she's actually more credible now. So it's kind of like, yeah, I'm in, I'm putting some credit in the bank if I ad admit that I'm wrong. And, you know, that doesn't mm -hmm. always make being wrong pleasurable, but it often makes it kind of palatable enough that I'm willing to right. do it. Right. Julia, one of the things that I have in my head around being rational mm -hmm. is rational thinking is a removal of emotion in terms yeah. of how I think better. It's like, if I can just get rid of these pesky human aspects of who I am, I'll be able to, you know, rise and become increasingly best rational. Best Vulcan in the world. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Best Vulcan yeah. in the world. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've, I've seen some research that is counter to that, but I'm curious to know what you think the role of emotions and feelings are in being able to think better. Yeah. So, uh, it is neither necessary nor desirable to get rid of all your emotions uh, in the service of rationality. Um, it's true that sometimes emotions can cloud your ability to think mm. clearly. Like that is that's true. Um, I you know, if I'm like really afraid of something being true, then I'm so strongly motivated to deny it. Um, yeah. Or if I'm really angry at someone, it's really hard for me to um, to think clearly about like, well, you know, they might have a point. Was it really their fault? Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that that is true, and there are you know definitely situations in which, uh, like kind of separating mm. yourself from that emotional reaction uh, can be helpful. Um, but you know, oftentimes emotions are just they're they're cues to what you care about and what you want and what you value. Mm. There's nothing irrational about that. Like when I uh, you know feel. Uh, when I feel joy at the idea of, you know, a certain life for myself or joy at, at, you know, a certain future for humanity or something, that's an yeah. emotion. And that's not, there's nothing irrational about that. That's just, that's a recognition of what I mm. um, want to strive for, for myself or for the world. Um, and then rationality can be a tool to help you more effectively, like get that life for yourself or, you know, right. improve the world in the way you want to improve it. Um, so but the, the emotion, <laughs> like, there would be no reason to do anything if we had no emotions at all. If you know <laughs> right. nothing made us feel better or worse than anything else. Uh, so right. emotions are definitely essential, um, and they can also, I think, be cues to information that you were not consciously aware of. Mm. Um, so if I feel uneasy or if I feel, um, I don't know, afraid or something, and then I examine that emotion, often there's a reason that I like some information I was ignoring that actually should factor into my rational decision making. Um, nice. so yeah, emotions can be valuable in that way as well. That's great. Thank you. Julia, I love this conversation. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Um, yeah. a, a question that I, I love to ask at the end of, uh, interviews like this is it's quite big, but uh, let uh -huh. me ask it to you. What needs to be said in this conversation between you and me that hasn't yet been said? Uh, well, I guess, I mean, one important thing that 
I always try to emphasize if I can that I haven't yet gotten a chance to talk about is um, how you should feel when you notice yourself in soldier mindset, like when you you notice right. yourself um, rationalizing or being defensive or not, you know, engaging with thinking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, um, yeah. Because I think uh, people sometimes come away from my, uh, you know, blog posts or my interviews thinking, oh, uh, being in soldier mindset is really bad. And I should, you know, if I ever notice I'm in soldier mindset, I should feel bad about myself. And that's actually the opposite of what I'm trying to say. Right. <laughs> because, you know, as you pointed out towards the beginning of this conversation, um, we tend to just not notice when we're in soldier mindset. We tend to just feel like we're, you know, already rational and objective. Mm. And, you know, oftentimes we're not. And so if you never notice yourself in soldier mindset, it's probably not the case that you're just an exception to humanity who never, <laughs> never has any <laughs> or biases or, you know, rationalizing. Yeah. Um, it's much more likely that you actually are in soldier mindset and just aren't noticing it. And so yeah. if you start to notice soldier mindset more, that's a good thing. That's actually progress. Um, you're developing more self-awareness right. um, and it's an essential step towards becoming more of a scout. And so you should feel good about yourself when you notice like, oh, wow, I'm, I was being defensive there. Oh, wow. In that argument, I wasn't actually listening to him. I was just, you know, preparing searching, my own, preparing my, my own rebuttals. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And you, that is like cause for celebration that you noticed. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to make sure I'm glad you asked because, uh, I just yeah. don't want anyone to come away from this conversation thinking they should beat themselves up when they, uh, notice themselves in soldier mindset, because it's just the opposite. So let me be a little provocative and ask you a question. Actually, I'm going to ask you two questions, but it's really the same question asked two different ways. First, where is your thinking brittle? And second, where are you feeling smug? I mean, in both cases, I suspect I'm asking you to identify where is your soldier mindset, that place you're dug in and you're defending. I'm asking myself the same questions, of course, and, you know, it is a little uncomfortable. I notice I have answers for what I see out in the world. So, for instance, my political understanding and stance on some things. But what I'm most noticing right now, probably because of the, the book I'm working on, is how that thinking affects my own view of myself. What I can do, what I'm allowed to do, what I should be doing, and also what's inappropriate, what's above my station, what's not mine to dream. So as you think about scout mindset, the way you, that you explore the world, don't just notice the world with new eyes. Notice yourself. You'll find Julia's book in all the usual places. There are links, as always, in the show notes. And you can find Julia at juliagaliff.com. The same for Twitter, at juliagaliff. And her podcast is irrationallyspeakingpodcast.org, O-R-G. Thanks for listening. It's always a joy and a pleasure to have you listen to the episodes. Thank you for giving it a review on whatever your favorite podcast app is. And thank you for the many of you who have signed up for the free membership site. It's called Duke Humphreys. It's named after a library in Oxford, which I love, where all the cool books used to be kept. And at Duke Humphreys, you'll see transcripts of the podcasts, plus other videos and uh, interviews that we haven't released, plus some downloads as well. You're awesome and you're doing great.